how should I present my company to an investor? How does the process work? How much time does it take? And what comes after the investment? Are those questions, questions that you asked yourself already? I get them frequently from my mentees when I talk with them about how to present your company to investors. Today, we have the great opportunity to listen to one of Europe's most accomplished life science investors, Bruno Montanari from Serova Life Science. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Christian. Welcome to all. Bruno, one question I would like to ask you right away. Uh, I hear a lot of, um, let's say, um, interesting ideas how to become a life science investor. So one of those ideas is you need to make billions before and then you can become a life science investor. Uh, is this really true? Uh, how is it to become a life science investor? What is necessary for that? Uh, if this assessment was true, there wouldn't be a lot of VC investors, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I would add, unfortunately. Mm. I mean, no, to, to become an investor, you can, you can have a different background. And actually, you come probably at different levels as well uh, in, a, in an established uh, VC fund. Uh, you can think as well, uh, actually, but this goes back to your point, having, having made a fortune before, um, you can become as well a business angel. Business angels are, are perfect investors as well to, to support the creation of, uh, of companies uh, and bring that to a level of maturity where institutional funding can be, can be found, actually, uh, sometimes uh, down to the finish line which can be an M&A for an exit or um, a public listing. And so the, the, the profiles are very different. Uh, you can find people coming from from a construction background, uh, always obviously in our, um, in our sector, healthcare. Uh, you have people having run companies, being professional as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's It's quite diverse, and as I said, you don't necessarily enter a VC fund at the same level, given your previous experience. Uh, and you can you can be part of the core investment team. You can be an entrepreneur in residence. You can be a venture partner. You've got different shades of gray here, uh, in order to um, to fulfill your role as as an investor, uh, which can be. Uh, completed with maybe a slightly more professional role uh, when you think about um, about entrepreneurial in residence or venture partner. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that you can uh, do two things. So there are two types of investors. One is the business angel and one is a venture fund. Yeah. Where do you see the difference between those two categories of investors? But the business angel, they can act collectively through through a group of such of such individuals, but usually um, they would they would tend to be very early at inception of mm. a company to put the first um, limited funding, more limited than what a VC institution can bring, especially since VCs syndicate together. Uh, I'm making a generalization here because you've got deep, deep pocketed uh, BAs that actually uh, can put dozens of millions if com in companies mm -hmm. as well. But usually, what you will what you will find 
with uh, BAs that uh, will put a few hundred thousand, maybe one or two million uh, to start with and try to put uh, a company on on track. So it's really the, uh, the kind of front and family money, if you want. Uh, and I would call it savvy uh, um, funding when those PAs come from the pharma or medical industry, because obviously then it goes just beyond initial support and, and love of entrepreneur uh, or innovation. It's really there to add value with accessing network and making sure that um, the startup can tap into the experience of the PAs. Mm-hmm. So the VC funds are more institutionalized, uh, more people, there's a process we go through, uh, you need layers of, uh, of due diligence analysis. Uh, it can be very often maybe less intuitive than what VAs can have the freedom to do, depending as well on the relationship. So it's, uh, I would say it's more, um, uh, yeah, more process oriented, larger funding. It's different. What is the point uh, when USAVC decides to take over the, the investment lead from the business angels? What is your ideal uh, investment object? Whether we, we take it from VAs or not, for us, and it will depend upon the investment thesis from one fund to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for early stage funds, Uh, some of them can actually already be there at the seed financing, or even what we call now pre-seed. Mm-hmm. Have more and more uh, a, a business model for some VC funds where they would put the first money in the form of convertible loan note as a pre-seed okay. before doing an equity raise, which would be a proper seed. Sometimes, depending on the size, it would be called a Series A. The um, I would say that, uh, that the name of those funding rounds has less and less importance because we see a variety of, of size and achievements mm-hmm. with those first fundings. Um, and so uh, and so either they come along, actually can substitute for VAs, or either they come slightly afterwards when there is the beginning of a team with the company, uh, some first data which support the claims and the original hypothesis, which put a bit more comfort around the, the story and the, and the investment visits. Uh, and then it's a classic one, which we might uh, discuss further, which is uh, the alchemy that can exist between the founding team and those early stage uh, VCs uh, and how strong can be the data. Sometimes, but it's, it's rarely the case, but some firms may have uh, the network and money to try and confirm again this type of data uh, with external work so that they can they can then move forward with the with the first investment and becoming part of the cap table. I would like to go back to a point that you mentioned that you said that it's more it's becoming more and more interesting for VCs to also come on board via convertible loan uh in a pre-seed or seed phase. Uh I was absolutely not aware of that. I always thought uh, I can approach a VC once a company has generated uh, sufficient data, has formed a team and already proven that it can bring, um, for example, a drug towards the clinical phase one. Uh, since when does this model exist that VCs are also interested to come I about? See, I see that a lot in, um, well, a lot. Actually, it's still relatively rare, but I see it more and more over the last uh, four or five years. Maybe one has to check in the US, because maybe this happened as well in the US more under stealth mode, 
but whereby uh, one doesn't want to put yet a lot of money on the table, other one to put valuation, and this money is there to structure the company uh, at, at creation and make sure that the first key elements can be confirmed. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I say uh, doing some confirmatory external confirmatory studies, this can be the case with such money. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, then you open it up for formal equity round. So this is where the valuation will be discussed, completed, uh, looking carefully at the cap table, etc. But um, yeah, this is something that I saw in uh, in seed funds happening more and more. Uh, that's great news because I think it's very beneficial to have a VC and the expertise on board very early in the company. Uh, what's the model that uh, you're currently working for, Sarova Life Science? So, what's yeah. the investment model that Sarova uses? So, uh, we are we are doing both biotech and medtech investment in Europe, but as well with some uh, exposure in North America. Uh, for biotech, we are usually uh, quarterly stage for first investment. Uh, and then, like like any VC fund, this might vary over the investment period. The earlier you are in your investment period, when you create a fund, the earlier stage you can go. It's all about an assumption about time to exit, given the fact that the fund usually is is closed after 10 to 12 years, 10 to 12 years. Uh, and so and so it can be uh, really even before having a preclinical candidate. Or, or a confirmatory uh, in vivo efficacy in a relevant animal model for, for such preclinical candidates. This can be uh, earlier than that. Uh, medical device, it will, it will depend. Our experience and to make us believe we would probably invest later stage at what we did before at first investment. And ideally for medtech having already first in man data. Mm -hmm. It's different drivers between between both biotech and medtech, and uh, enhance uh, a different way to approach uh, first investment for, for us. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the life science business model. Um, I learned at the university that actually every company needs a customer. And um, when I talk with people, especially now that we have this uh, heightened awareness for life science investment with the novel coronavirus, mm -hmm. um, some people say. Uh, well, that means we need to build another pharma company because we need to get access to patients and uh, that actually costs uh, billions. How, uh, for an investor like you, does the life science business model work? Uh, how do you develop a company? Uh, there, there, are, there are multiple ways to develop a company. You've, you've got companies which are centered around one or two assets mm -hmm. and companies which are qualified as platform companies where uh, actually you can address several targets, several indications, uh, and there the, um, the the way to think about building a company is really different because out of a platform, what is key is to make sure that you select the right programs you're going to finance and push forward. And selecting the right programs is probably with a twofold objective, further validating the platforms with additional data, uh, and as well, uh, having ideally programs which are not ju just there for proof of principle to then be shelved, but actually uh, programs that are commercially viable and that will be of interest to uh, the large corporations for either partnering or maybe the acquisition of the company. So obviously, it's uh, I would say it's a more daunting task when you have a platform. Uh, 
to make sure that uh, you build as well the organization and the internal competencies around some given therapeutic areas uh, and at, at various levels, at various stages of development of, uh, of those programs. When you have one asset, usually it's pretty focused uh, and it's uh, obviously it's not the same, the same bets and the same way of, uh, of building companies. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. How does it work to, to get in touch with pharma companies to do an M&A deal? Um, I can imagine it, uh, how the process works to bring a product to the patient. Um, but as a VC, how do you get access to the pharma industry? Actually, the, those two worlds, VC and, and pharma industry, have been increasingly in contact in the last 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. uh, understanding each other's language, <laughs> the objectives, and understanding uh, why we need each other. Um, And so, and so those uh, pharma companies are easy to access, I would say. Uh, they are not in the ivory tower, mm -hmm. uh, not understanding what is the VC like, and actually uh, us as well, uh, thinking that we don't need pharma and that the startups are always better. Not at all. I mean, those two will communicate at various levels, and actually it's needed because those pharma companies need to have, in a way, um, a feedback from those startups where we invest from different routes. And actually they talk to various co-investors in the same companies on top of having some management presentations so they can cross-check the information. Mm -hmm. uh, and it enables them as well to monitor the progress or not. Uh, and, and for us, it's important uh, as we have two hats very often, we have a hat on the board and we have the shareholders hat. But in both cases, it's important to make sure that the company is visible to the pharma industry uh, because it's not because you're the best or you believe you're the best that things will come uh, out of the sky. I mean, uh, a management team uh, needs to make sure that is well known to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, so that uh, when a deal is ripe, actually, uh, they don't discover you. Uh, they have followed this, there have been interactions, there's a direct connection made between manager, the startup found a champion inside the pharma industry who hopefully will not change by the time the deal can be done. So all of this is kind of a of step-by-step -step process paving the way towards a transaction. So, uh, so those two worlds talk, talk often on a more or less regular basis. Uh, so it can, it can be for a deal, for example, an investment for a company. But sometimes it happens that we, as we are meeting dozens, actually hundreds of opportunities, very often it's the case that uh, we don't have much of a clue yet about an indication or a disorder. And um, we can give a call sometimes to some pharma colleagues that can help as well 
to tell us more and maybe point out point out to us a few um, a few interesting um, uh, academics or clinicians and sometimes we even reciprocate towards the industry because a lot of, of those industry are thinking about various strategic moves or reinforcing them in the franchise and very often they are they are open to hear about who we talk to what cross come across and where is the innovation coming from. It's a very interesting point that you made before. You said um, a company should be well known yeah. uh, when a deal becomes ripe. This is one of the fears I, I hear very often when I work as a mentor with scientists who want to found a company. Uh, when I tell them, look, guys, uh, you need someone who goes out and speaks with investors and the pharma industry, then they, simp uh, they really go, go back and say, no, we can't do that because why should pharma buy from us? I mean, they just pick up us up. They just pick up our idea and develop it, develop it themselves. Is this really a just fear, or is this something that uh, you would say people should overcome and should really uh, be open-minded, go out and talk to pharma? I, I would I would answer the following way: If there is a confidential agreement being signed, if uh, the innovation is well protected by patents, this fear should be overcome because mm -hmm. those two parties, startups backed by scientific founders and industry, need to talk. Yeah. And, and uh, things don't happen over 24 hours. So things take time. People move from those big pharma organizations to others. Uh, sometimes the startup needs to redo again the exercise of educating, not evangelizing. Uh, some of the farming industry guys to what they've been working on before as academics and now uh, in a startup or process for discussion to get candidates. So um, I, I definitely needs to be overcome. Of course, uh, I, I, one can understand the fear if um, the patent protection is weak or inexistent. Uh, Anyone would say, well, then Big Pharma, if they believe it's a great idea, why don't they put resources onto it and just and just do it themselves? But this as well is, is easier said than done because the pharma industry has got its own budget, reporting, mm. focus, uh, and it's not like uh, every week uh, they're going to put 20 people on one idea because they think it's great and it's an open space with the patent. Uh, and try to do it themselves, not at all. And this is really the difference between a, a, a startup and a big pharma industry. The startup is totally focused to progress um, one idea, a program, a platform, and probably will do it as well, if not better, than in a big pharma organization where on a more or less regular basis, you have arbitrage between programs, between business units, uh, one has to defend the budget. I mean, it's, it's a different setting. So even mm. in those days where, yeah, maybe it's super early, it's a great idea, and oh, I'm fearing that uh, the, the big guys are going to take my idea. I think that um, it, it's rarely the case. Uh, and then it's up to the scientific founders to just disclose what they are comfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially published early before there are the relevant patterns yeah. <laughs> written and filed. This is important to note as well. 
uh, and then later on, as the discussion progresses, and as there is more protection involved, then they can open it up a bit more. Mm. That's interesting what you say. Um, I see more and more also with pharma companies that pharma, like Berlinger, for example, with the Research Beyond Borders program, uh, set up programs to support scientists very early, sometimes even before a company is formed. And I also would say, I mean, if there is no patent or if an idea is not strong enough to file a strong patent, it's a question then if the idea really can become a company. So I would not worry it, be worried at all. Yeah. Because it, takes, it, it takes years, it takes years, efforts, millions to make yeah. something happen. I mean, it would be known if pharma was a kind of, uh, of institution that can just uh, seed Uh, projects from nearly scratch out of academia and, and spend all those years and, and budget. I mean, they, 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 they are better off actually having us and before maybe to try and bring forward something which is a bit more validated uh, rather than doing it themselves. Mm. And, and another point is that uh, there's a lot of, of credibility at stake. So um, if really uh, Uh, a pharma industry, or actually some executives in the pharma industry would not behave properly, that that would resonate badly when think and, and it would be it would be known. So people are very cautious about that. It takes it takes years to get to uh, credibility, oh, yeah. <laughs> people to respect you. It doesn't take much actually to break that down. Um, so this is as well another factor to take into account. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it takes years to build a reputation and uh, a few wrong moves and the reputation is gone quite quickly. Um, I, I know that from the very early stages, so as a business angel, that uh, the world is very dynamic. Um, but I think this is not so really the spot of a VC. The VC world that I got to know over the last 16 years was a little bit more later down the road. Yeah. So between uh, efficacy data in clinics and uh, the preclinical work. Um, in your opinion, when you when we talk about timing, uh, how long does it take uh, when you start talking with the pharma industry to structure a deal until you get the final signature and uh, the deal really happens? Well, it's, it's like any transaction. It's... Um... It depends on a couple of factors. Well, actually, more than a couple. The first is the fit between the company, the startup, and the, the big pharma, and making sure that uh, there is a, a level of desire to make a deal which is there with the right people interacting. And again, it's all finding the champion inside the pharma industry that will be convinced and will convince its own guys through their internal process that this is the deal to be done, okay? Uh, so this is the this is an utmost requirement. Then it's about um, alignment of, of the stars. Uh, yeah. At some point in time, uh, you feel that everything is ready and you, you need to make sure the process is going smooth and quick. And this can only be helped if there is a bit of competition. Obviously, <laughs> If, if the pharma guys uh, strongly believe that they are, the, they are the only one really sitting at the negotiation table and they're not going to be uh, be uh, taken away, or some, I would say rather in, in proper English that no one will take away this deal from them, but then they will take more time, of course. Uh, 
uh, if they believe that actually there are a few big guys around the table that, that can offer more and, and quicker, then it's an incentive to be more quick. So a deal can take, uh, in my experience, anywhere between uh, two years or more of monitoring, progress checking, discussions, before we really discuss about, uh, about uh, terms and conditions to actually uh, three or four months. And, and I've heard, not experienced, but I've heard of deals which were actually taken only weeks. But those ones, if you have not been monitoring the company before, I would be very cautious about them. But usually they never say how quick it was and why. Uh, sometimes they don't even say how much. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah, the, the world changed a little bit with the Corona crisis. I also heard from, from deals that within six weeks, uh, they were signed, but I'm pretty sure, as you say, that the pharma company already had the target on the monitor for a longer period of time. Yeah. Uh, talking about timing and risk, USVC invest uh, in assets before the pharma company picks them up. Um, when I invest on the stock market, I mean, I get a lot of information, a lot of data. Uh, and of course, I mean, investment is always risky, but uh, with listed companies, it's a little bit narrowed down. Uh, how is the risk in the life science industry at the stage of companies when you invest? How do you handle that? Uh, so, so the risk assessments, I mean, depending on the fund and depending on the individual the investors in the fund, uh, you've got very different ways there are two key aspects to um, tackle, and, tackle and investigate. It's the team you're talking to, uh, how appropriate have they been so far uh, in terms of, of where they stand with the programs, what data have been generated by who, and the quality of it. Um, and, and, and the team, is the team fit? or purpose for the next coming two to three years, uh, which is generally the scope of, uh, of a financing round that you are contemplating, okay? So um, first thing in an analysis is to make sure that, that you are comfortable with this team. Mm -hmm. And if there need to be maybe additions, that uh, they are in agreement with you as to what the next steps are and what type of profile they need to embark to make sure that they can execute and deliver on the plan. And this is, there is some reciprocity here. I always tell uh, the management teams I meet before an investment, make sure that if you have the possibility, you choose the VCs and especially the VC representative that you're going to embark with. Because it's, it's not only money, you're going to have on your governance, uh, on the board, 
of your company going to have those VCs being, being represented. And you need to make sure that on a one-to-one -one basis, um, the discussion and interaction is going well. Well doesn't mean that it's uh, just a yes man and yes to everything, but that there is a constant relationship, mm -hmm. okay? Where everyone can uh, hear challenging views and try to do the best for the company and make informed decisions. But it's not only on a one-to-one -one basis uh, because you've got a bench of investors reps on, on the board, but you've got uh, as well independent directors so all of this needs to, to be oiled well enough so that it can be really uh, going well moving forward. It's like a, a bit of a short wedding, and, uh, and you want it to be. So the the, the human uh, aspect is very important. Very important. You can have the best programs, the best data. If a team cannot deliver, or if worse, there is a bad chemistry at a governance level with perhaps wrong decisions being made, whatever the reasons, uh, then it's going to be tough. And then there is something which is much more technical, much more analytical, which is the data. Uh, here, usually, uh, the VC funds will likely find relevant independent experts outside, will mandate them to look over their shoulders and check out if the data is strong enough, uh, if the plan is the right one according to the positioning, if there is nothing competition that might be a paradigm shift and that will totally change um, the way the company needs, uh, the direction it needs to go into. Uh, so this is uh, the analytical side, which is, I would say, maybe this just in a way, even if it can get very complex, it's still based on data, hypothesis, mm -hmm. And you can talk to a lot of different people, highly relevant, highly skilled, to try and understand exactly what's going on and if, if the hypothesis of the company are the right ones or if you need to change them. And this mm -hmm. is where, as well, it needs to be uh, a constructive exchange. It's not about who is right or wrong, it's to make sure that already, collectively, before even the event is made, we can talk openly and decide really what is best. Sometimes the BP is good enough, but it's all a matter of execution. Sometimes it needs to be adapted. And so at the end of the day, you've got a more clear picture as to where the level of risk are, what are the risk mitigation factors. And according to your fund, um, uh, I would say objectives in building the portfolio of investees, and as well with what you and your colleagues at your investment committee are more comfortable with or not, the deal will happen or will not. And if a deal is not happening, it's not that the door is closed forever, it's just that, well, okay, there have been a few red flags or a few things that eventually mm. are, not, are not good enough for us. Uh, let's take progress or let's further discuss and we'll you said the human factor is very important when you decide uh, upon investing in a company. Um, when I look at the academic side, there is uh, mostly a lot of data. And uh, when you say the human factor and the team is important, I think you're not talking about the academic team. I think you're talking about the development team so that you want to see the right skill set. Depends. Sometimes you've got scientific founders who are CEO and CSO and CTO, you know, having the, the, the C status, uh, which is fine. But obviously, this is where you need to make sure, well, at least this is my point of view, 
other investors might act and, and think differently. But you need to make sure that those guys understand uh, what the game is all about. And that um, developing, um, well, designing and executing studies with an academic objective in mind to further explore mechanism of action, pharmacology, is really different compared to trying to select or preclinical candidate, which will later be drug candidates getting into, into healthy volunteers and thereafter patients. Uh, so it's a different way of thinking, of anticipating. Uh, and this is where uh, those interactions before investment are very important because if the scientific founders believe they know it all and better than anyone else, even in areas like regulatory, clinical, or even preclinical animal talks where they never went into, uh, this is going to be a bit of an issue, okay? Uh, if they say, you know what, we are very good at this level, uh, yes, we'd like to be kept as CEO, CFO, CEO, we'll see how things go, but obviously we will need to uh, bring in a translational person, someone more versed CMC, maybe have earlier than expected some people with a clinical and regulatory background. Perfect, perfect. I mean, I'm not the type of VCs who would say, uh, oh, you scientists, Founders, it was nothing out to be put in an advisory seat, and and we'll have a brand new team. No, not necessarily the case. Um, but it's true that this is where you take a bit of a, of a bet. It is, which is well, evolve the way we think they can, and they say there are. Or are we going to meet some issues later on? Mm-hmm. Well, what I would be interested in, I think when people think about investors, mostly they think about retail investors because it's quite simple and easy today to invest on the stock market in listed companies and uh, the process is straightforward. You can, I can rely on um, analysis that I find on the internet. I can almost uh, not talk with the CEO or with any uh, person in the company because it's just uh, the investment is too small. And once the investment is done, uh, there is usual quarterly reports, annual reports. Uh, is How is it in the VC world? Uh, how much is a VC engaged in the operations? Or is a VC similar to a retail investor in handling the investment process? No, no, it's, it's real. Well, actually, again, you, you have different VCs, different VC firms. Okay. Um, but it's... It's nearly obvious that a VC fund will do much more work than reading a few reports around uh, the, the disease uh, and just putting a bit of money and waiting for board meetings to happen, a shareholder meeting every year, uh, and having a nice chat with, with the company when he can. Uh, it goes much more in depth. It's a lot of publication reading. It's a lot of discussions with experts. Uh, from the company or and actually out of sight of the company again in the process. Um, so so it's really a two different way of, of acting. And and on the retail market in public, in public oh, there's a lot of speculation and and the reports you can find usually are in a way biased, especially in Europe. Uh, I can allude more to that, but uh, just look at the number of, of buy um, that are being put on companies versus neutral or sell, you will maybe think that something is odd. Either they're all great, either there is something that, that's not, not normal, okay? So yeah, it's, it's two different ways of, of approaching companies, approaching investment businesses, 
And uh, and when you are reading in the business of market, uh, you can play around, uh, buy one day, sell the other day. There's some liquidity, or there should be. Uh, as, a, as an institutional VC in a privately held company, uh, you are there for years, going through the tough times with the management, your co-investors and other uh, board, uh, fellow, fellow board members, to try and help go through those hard times, find solutions, and move it to the next steps. It's totally different, totally different. Mm-hmm. One advice I got, it was years ago, so um, I heard the, the story when a company needs money, it's the, the only time when they engage with VCs. Uh, so they put basically the story on the market for a certain time period and usually three or four weeks later the money is uh, on the bank account. Um, I never saw this, so in 16 years. Um, well, for, for those that <laughs> can see my face on video, I think they got my reaction. Uh, no, it, it, it really happens like that in, in, in privately held uh, uh, companies. Uh, usually, there have been more or less regular talks with various VCs at various conferences, just to provide them with an update under or not confidentiality, depending on how uh, the relationship went before and uh, to what to what point. Um, and, then, uh, and then when really the company is, is ready in an ideal world, they will have already aligned Actually, selling the ones that make more sense to them, to reach them out this this time around formally for fundraising, and this is where they're trying to put in place a process that is not going to take ages, uh, but you don't you don't do it three months before you're running out of cash. Okay, <laughs> uh, more and more you start to do it uh, uh, maybe a year before, mm. yeah, because it, it can take as long as a year to get the, the money in and the closing done. Uh, it's uh, it can be pre- pretty painful. <laughs> <laughs> now I see, I see it absolutely the same way, and um, I also had the feeling that, uh, as you said, with the pharma company, it also makes sense to reach out to VC before a company needs money to mm-hmm. just have this initial um, get-to-know phase and to see if uh, the team is the right fit with the VC and also the other way around. Uh, you said the human factor is very important. Yeah, um, is. How much time does the robot take to get to know the people, actually? Do we talk about days or um, more on the month side? No, it's it, it's more even more than that. I mean, some companies we monitor over over years, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and as far as I'm concerned, because I cannot talk necessarily for all my colleagues, my fellow investors, and some other friends, but as far as I'm concerned, it happens that um, even if uh, if a company is not yet for an investment from our fund, uh, I keep in touch on a regular basis because because they want me as well to provide some some genuine feedback as to what they think uh, and and the data they have uh, and it's it goes both way it's it's one feedback one opinion among others but at least hopefully it's valuable to them and it's as well keeping the relationship with an investor uh, to make sure that at the, at the next stage maybe. Uh, here it will be the right moment for, for to consider investment. But the human factor is very important. And, and sometimes, and this is where um, startups need to keep that in mind as well, we are um, quite busy receiving nearly every day uh, some new investment opportunities. Uh, at Zeroba, we're trying to be quick in saying, yes, let's organize the first presentation formally to go through this tech. Uh, or thank you, but 
doesn't fit what we're looking for now or not yet of interest because of such and things, but we're trying to, to have such a feedback because it is very, uh, very difficult for, for a startup uh, not to receive a feedback or to hope for actually something positive just because there's no feedback. Um, this is this is not the right the right thing to do. Having said that, VCs are pretty busy. And sometimes, yes, things slip. Um, so, um, so, so this uh, this relationship is um, is ongoing always. To get a little bit better understanding of the other side of the negotiation table, the VC table, uh, out of interest, how many deals do you see? How many potential deals do you see in a year? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. Uh, so for Silver Bar, I think we are at 450, 500 every year. Really? Which come to us or yeah. that been an interest in some area from time to time or just because we looked into what maybe um, the industry has been doing, uh, what publications we've read, uh, or maybe as well from uh, discussions with fellow co-investors from the portfolio of what they're interested in. You see, it's, it's far as sources reactive or reactive. So there's blood coming. Mm -hmm. It can come directly to us uh, because we've got a website where, which is where we are very easily accessible. Uh, or through conferences or through the recommendation of someone. Um, I would say that out of this, probably a third can make sense. And this is where we will likely have uh, an hour presentation to start with. And so, yeah, and, and this is this is what I wanted to say before, uh, which escaped my mind. What is important is this first hour. This is quite critical because this is where we will have a sense if the equity story, the investment thesis is well presented, well articulated, and if we have a clear view as to what's going on and where they want to go, or if it's fuzzy, confusing, when mm -hmm. we ask questions, the answers are not necessarily straight, it doesn't look that solid. You see, that was very important, very important. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's not a matter of, um, of just putting together with deck and improvising by bringing six people uh, to discuss with the VC. Uh, actually, the, the startup needs to, to rehearse and make sure that in one hour, the key takeaway messages are clear. Because if it's not, guess what? Uh, then in the next two or three hours, I will have another presentation, which might be more attractive to me or to my colleague, because usually at Cerrobo, very often we have two on a presentation, not only one, Guy doing and hearing whatever you want to hear or do. Um, and if this, this next one is more attractive, this is the one we will discuss the next morning with our guys uh, to say, oh, okay, this is the that we went through, and mm, this one we're going to dig into it. 
the others, probably not. You mm -hmm. see? So this for us, it's always an arbitration. And, and this is, in my view, the most tricky, which is to make sure we can prioritize early on our time on what really can make an investment happen to closing. Mm -hmm. Because our time is, is super limited. We don't have dozens of people in the VC fund. It's just a few investors. Uh, and it's only 24 hours in a day. And therefore, um, if you spend days and nights on a deal that eventually doesn't come to fruition, it's days and nights that you didn't spend on something else, which would have been more productive, you see? Mm -hmm. So we were super, super careful about that. So this interaction is really important. I see that we have a question from uh, from the audience, from Christine Bernard. Let's see if she's here, then I can hand her the, the microphone. Um, well, I can read it as well. Yeah. So how do you perceive in companies having more consultants than employment? How does this wait for VCs investments? It depends at which stage they are, but I would say that usually advisors are not payers. So um, a, a full-time employee, obviously, uh, is more vested and bought more into the story of, of the company and um, its, its salary and um, later valuation outcome of the shares you can have in the company is more important than an advisor. Uh, but sometimes, uh, because the company is young, uh, it, it often happens that uh, there are more advisors than managers. And the other situation is where you have those virtual or semi-virtual uh, structure to try and avoid high fixed costs. This is particularly true with um, one asset companies. And this makes sense as well. You don't need a little army uh, to try and develop one program, especially if it's a program that is entering the clinic. Um, so you need to make sure that uh, this situation and the balance between internal people versus external advisors is well weighed and appropriate for the stage where the company is and for what it's doing. I mean, if you tell me it's a, it's a two-man person for a huge platform uh, and you have 30 advisors, for example, I would I would be a bit scared about that. <laughs> <You see? laughs> uh, that's interesting. Bruno, another question when I look at the process. So you get a lot of deals on your table and you have a limited amount of time in a year. Yeah. Um, there is this uh, pitch deck term uh, that I think everybody in the startup world meanwhile is familiar with. Mm. What information flow would you like to see from a company so that the company stands out of the crowd, that it's not comes across as messy? In, in this first interaction? In this, in this first, first interaction, the pitch deck. Um, so there are two things. There are things that are going to be found in the deck and things that are going to be discussed. Mm -hmm. What I like to hear, and maybe I kept being a kid in a body, in an adult body, is to hear a story. I like to hear stories, see? And not bedtime story, obviously. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I like to understand the background. Once upon a time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I like to understand the background of, of the company, where the founding from, how they met, how they come up with the idea, who helped structuring the first steps of the company. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe how to better the science, where the publications are coming from. This is very important because it's it's years and years of, of hard labor and effectively human relationships that I was not part of 
and which explains a lot. And actually, it explains as well very often the DNA of the company. And this is where uh, I'm always intrigued to hear about those stories because then I have a better feel already as to who, in a way, I'm facing over a conference call or video conf uh, and better understand maybe how things have been structured. Then it's about the data generated. And uh, of course, there is confidentiality aspects and so on is told. It can be said and, and, and blocked, but this is where I need to see some data. Uh, a pitch where I have no data, I mean, it's going to be hard to be convinced. I need something there, okay? And data which has been generated from the company of course, collaborators in relation to the program of the platform, not data which I can still see from coming from the different companies in the world, as there's nothing to do with what the company is working on, but just trying to say it's validated. So we are validated, ah, not the same thing, you see. Mm -hmm. And then it's forward looking state. Okay, from where you are, where do you want to go and why? And then naturally, you end up with and needs, uh, and you've got. In an hour, an hour 15, the first good understanding of where the company is coming from, where it is, where it wants to go, and if actually it's well articulated and it makes sense for you to take more time and this time sign maybe an NDA and get, get more into the granularity to check what you heard and more. So it really means taking, as a company, taking your time, sitting down, uh, thinking about how to develop a compelling storytelling. Um, usually when I talk with scientists, I see a lot of data, um, but they really miss that uh, storytelling component out. Yeah. So you you really, if I got it right, you really recommend to any company who reaches out to VCs to really sit down and do the homework first before sending yeah. just a bunch of data over. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and I would be even maybe a bit more cynical well, in, in a sense, uh, first practical and then cynical. The, the, the first uh, maybe suggestion I would have is to tell them, well, if you have some early investors, business angels uh, that supported you, try first the, the pitch on them. Mm -hmm. Use them. Check out how clear it is. Because if they get it right and they believe it's clear, well, they know the story, it's already a good, a good start. If it's not the case, then it means that you, you, you get something wrong, okay? And then the cynical suggestion, which is, well, you've got a few dozens of investors that you can reach out to. Some of them probably are not a fit anyway, for various reasons. You know what? Test the water with them for and, and And see how the reaction goes. And this is where if there's anything obvious that is really not, not right, you, you, should, you should see it and adapt accordingly to always enhance, improve your deck and your pitch. Um, at the end of the pitch, usually, as you said, there is uh, the use of proceeds or the amount of money a company tries to raise and yeah. uh, giving also some reasons. Uh, from one of my mentees, uh, I heard that during a pitch, the investor asked the, um, the CEO of the company and say, okay, you need 3 million euros. Just Let's just assume I give, I give you 30 million euros. What would you do? And the mentee said, what is the right answer to that question? Yeah. What's your opinion on that? I mean, maybe one reason was that this VC had lots, lots of cash to deploy and a 3 million ticket was not making any sense. 
Mm. But maybe as well, it is perhaps something that would have been known by the startups before going to the VC. Just to keep in mind. Then, if it's just a kind of tricky question asked by the VC, I mean, this is where uh, the startups need, even though they don't have necessarily and obviously rarely the internal competency, to check out really where they will be over five years down the road and how much money they will need. They need to have. So imagine a company uh, just starting some in vitro uh, study to try and test the pharmacology hypothesis. Obviously, they don't need 30 millions to try and get to in vivo proof of concept. Okay, uh, so 3 million is already enough with a bit of box data. But to that question, it means oh yes, of course we have 30 millions. It means that we go into GLP talks into animal species. It means we produce the supply for the clinical trials. It means that actually uh, we might want to run a small uh, hypothesis of relevant and minimal models. And then, as well, it's all about planning to be ID ready and starting a clinical trial, which means hiring people, uh, getting to know the sites where we're going to enroll patients. So, it is implication. And obviously, it shows to the VC that, oh, okay, they can see just beyond the next 12 months. And those three million, they know what is the end game. Mm -hmm. Of course, no one has a crystal ball as it is 20, 30, 50, and how it will go. You see, but this is, I would, I would say this is what the startup can answer, mm -hmm. and not stuck dry and not understanding what. <laughs> That's true. So let's just assume. Let's go a little bit further to, on this journey, and let's assume. Uh, we got the first pitch right. Uh, we also got the first hour right, and Seroba uh, decides to invest in yep. any company. Uh, the investment is not done then. So, what is the aftermath uh, uh, okay. that the VC has with the company once the investment is done? What has uh, a life sense entrepreneur to expect? Okay. So, as far as I'm concerned, before I put the concrete on the table, usually if I'm acting as a lead or a co lead, I would have done some technical due diligence with mm -hmm. external experts before. Because who am I to say if the data I'm being shown and the positioning I'm being told is the right one and the best one? So I need external people to go over my shoulders at a point where I heard and interacted enough to believe and understand what's going on and to ask the relevant questions to my expert as well. Um, so it's only when I have the report, which is substantive and supportive enough, that we will enter into a term sheet. In a classic world, I would say the term sheet will have, for me, will be quite detailed. It's not just a one pager, it's a few pages, okay? Uh, taking most of the clauses that will be found in the final legals, and it will be pending of something obvious, which is my investment decision. Okay. It has the eventual yes or no decision. It's not me making the decision, it's a partnership. Uh, then, obviously, the situation of the company, by the time uh, we decide with my IC to go forward and wire the money, there shouldn't be any uh, major adverse event, the famous back flows that's happening, which would just put everything in top at the last minute. It happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, just think about the COVID-19 situation. Okay, maybe this this created a serious serious issues in some cases. 
Uh, and then there, there is a massive, uh, I would say, large expense due diligence that still needs to be done, which is a financial audit. It's more or less important, depending upon how complex, how old is the company you invest into. So it's legal and financial due diligence. There is usually a freedom to, to operate analysis and IP assessment, which is FPO plus profitability, which is pretty key. Because if we end up discovering that actually the patents are weak or being heavily challenged, actually that you are probably infringing on other people's business and patents, this is going to be an issue. Uh, and if this is here, then yes, uh, the lawyers uh, the lawyers will have been engaged and you will have moved move into the legal. Then the legals can take some time depending on how detailed the term sheet. And, and sometimes what have double thoughts, you know, uh, they didn't think carefully about it when we discussed the term sheet, they want to go back on that. There are a few things that can be necessarily detailed in the term sheet. So this can, can take a bit of time. So when I when I calculate the time roughly, I would say we are talking about a year from the first contact, um, going uh, over the term sheet phase, then uh, the detailed due diligence phases. Oh no, was... no, less less than that, less than that, mm -hmm. less than that. I mean, uh, uh, you can. Uh, it depends on, on the outcome of those experts. I would mandate obviously because the more red flag, the more questions, the more time we need from them to. And get some, some rational answers. But um, in an ideal situation, uh, you will, I will probably take few months uh, from the first interaction down to having the relevant expert reports. If they are free, if they could be mandated on time, it's as well if, because they're not waiting for you, those, those experts, <laughs> they have things to do as well. Uh, then uh, if, there, if the term sheet is clear and there's no uh, it's a matter of weeks to find it. And then you've got maybe another two to three months to think uh, to finalize the uh, due diligence and get the legals done so that uh, everything is set to be wired and for the new story to start. So it could be five, six months. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we could an extension. Because in, in the case of an extension of a previous round, you're piggybacking on all the legals. You don't have to rewrite all the legal yeah. And as you know better than me, in some jurisdictions as well, it can be pretty painful to have to go to a notary, to get translations done, uh, get it all uh, approved, stamped, in different languages. Sometimes it's a nightmare, and this can delay process. So I'm not even talking about those situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, so let's assume further that we got everything right and Seroba uh, is happy to sign the contract and wire the money. Uh, does that mean then uh, job is done, the company can work for the next two or three years to uh, reach the promised value inflection points? And that's the first time when uh, the company re-engages with Seroba, uh, claiming the next money or, or is there something? What is the expectation? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's it's the beginning of a new relationship whereby mm -hmm. uh, uh, you will have uh, new investors sitting on on your board. Uh, you will have, um, I would say, on average, bi monthly board meetings. In between board meetings, you, you will bi, bi monthly. Bi monthly, so yeah. Every every two months. Yeah, it's about the it's about the, the rhythm of mm -hmm. those board meetings. Maybe there will be subcommittees as well. Uh, 
on some given topic that will need additional work. Uh, in between, you can have informal calls, meetings, to discuss some situations. Uh, when, the, when there's a close relationship between <coughs> management and, and, and the investor uh, that act as a sparring partner to find bounce off ideas uh, of, of, of him or her. Uh, so no, it's, it's the beginning of multiple and multiple and multiple face-to-face uh, -face or, or phone calls. And, mm -hmm. and the companies shouldn't feel challenged or threatened by that at all. I mean, uh, obviously, when they're trying to, to access VC money, it's not only for the money, it's as well for the experience, for the fit between individuals, and to make sure they have the re required guidance and help as well. One thing that you, you asked, which I think I only partly, if not, not until at all, I think I, earlier you were talking about how deep are you in the operations? Actually, my take is very simple. Uh, even if I had been an industry operative in biotech or, or pharma, whatever you want to, to name it, there's a red line to cross, which is I'm not a manager. Mm -hmm. okay, so I'm not there to manage people of the startup. I'm not there <coughs> on a daily basis. I'm not there uh, to make decisions on my own for the company, not at all. Okay, I'm there to ask, try and ask the relevant questions try and help and find the relevant solutions when problems are anticipated or happen, okay? And this needs to be done collectively. This is important. Mm -hmm. So th th this, is, this is pretty key because at the end of the day, an investor is betting on the team and, and it's up to the team then to, to execute and be transparent and, and honest enough to raise the hand when they have problems. Okay? Mm -hmm. The issue that might happen is, is twofold. When you have an investor that actually believes he or she can do better than the team and want to make a decision or acts on behalf of the company, well, you don't have that type of mandate, okay? Uh, or actually the other way around as well, where the management team actually is, is keeping its hearts close to the chest and don't want to admit there are issues, hoping to solve them before it's being seen. This is really going in the wrong direction and you can yeah. be sure that it's going to fly back into, into every, everyone's face at some point and the later it happens the worse it's going to be. This is okay. going to be a wreck, damages will be done and, and this is where there's going to be a divorce. So it's basically your recommendation is open communication. So yes. look at the yes. human factor initially yes. before approaching investors. Yeah. Uh, does the founding team really feel comfortable with the personalities of the investor and vice versa? And once the investment in it's done, it's everything about honest and open communication. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's all about building trust. Mm -hmm. You see, I mean, uh, in some situations, the guys will have known each other from a previous investment experience or for, from a previous world or through maybe as well connections. So that's put more rationale and confidence. Other than that, it's professional interactions on entering a company and to a point where you invest. But still, what you didn't have to go through yet the tough moments together and have to sweat together thinking that maybe the stake of the program or even the company might, might be at risk and how do we answer that, okay? Mm -hmm. This is going to be the, the, the key um, the event, the key proof that you can work together. And so it's all about building trust and making sure that informed decision-making mm -hmm. uh, and then obviously if it, has, if, it is, if it ends up being the bad decision, so be it. Uh, but 
but it's it's very important. It's again all about the human factor here. Mm -hmm. So let's assume further we got everything right. We developed the company further. The drug uh, gets uh, great efficacy data in the clinic, and uh, we also have a pharma company that is willing to sign a license deal, but not acquire the company. Mm -hmm. um, Who keep a pharma, for example, it's an Austrian company, decided to do an IPO at the Nasdaq. Uh, what relevance has an IPO to a VC like you? In this Hello. game, I, IPO is not an exit for VC. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, it's a refinancing first. It can become an exit once the lockup period, when our pre-IPO shares are locked, is over. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. assuming there is some liquidity, okay. So an IPO is really a refinancing event, and and you can uh, you can find a situation. Of, um, of a dual track process where the company actually engage advisor both for IPO and MA track. And this is interesting because the IPO route means for the potential acquirer that, well, they better hurry up before IPO to acquire the company because maybe later on it's going to be more difficult and more expensive. And, uh, and at the same time, um, the IPO process is there to ensure that. You are not depending upon such licensing deal to keep on funding the company. See, so it, it puts the company in a in a better negotiating position as well. Mm. So that's that's quite important. But easier said than done. An IPO is not done just because you decide it. Uh, there are market conditions, and and then again, uh, once you become public, it's a different story. Okay, different rules, and we often managers of privately held companies don't foresee well how tough and demanding becoming public will be. Oh, yeah. and it's, it's, it's really mm -hmm. a different different game and different people you will have to face. And you will even regret your VC investors <laughs> and sometimes provided some some hard moment to you and challenging, challenging uh, questions. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't do any statistics, um, but just from my personal observations, I see from European companies in the life science industry, I see a lot of IPOs in the United States on the NASDAQ. And I'm aware of one IPO in Europe in the last three years. It was in Austria, MarinoMed. Uh, where do you see, what, what are the reasons why so many companies decide to go to the, to the United States? In your so, opinion? So in the last year, there have been more than that IPO in the biotech and medtech world in Europe, thank God. And and but the, the issue with Europe is that it's still uh, very spread over in between countries. And so usually a French company will go to French banks, uh, a British company will think about AIM or maybe NSC. Uh, then you've got the Amsterdam French. So and and obviously. In each of those stock markets in Europe, you don't have the breadth and depth that you can find in investment space and money available as well valuation you can expect as on Nasdaq. And this is why for a few years now, companies have been going either in a two-step process, i.e. first you open IPO, with then a follow-on and a listing uh, and an offering of shares on Nasdaq or directly to Nasdaq. Because it is on NASDAQ that you will find not only special investors, which can be helpful as well as a valid and helpful maybe as well. 
you find the crossover investors, which are the guys that are going to bring a lot of money before the IPO and paving the way towards the IPO, pressuring IPO. So um, this is um, this is all the reasons why a lot of, of companies are not eyeing an NASDAQ IPO and not anymore an IPO in their own stock market. The other thing is about liquidity. And this is both for the, the, the well, actually it's for all shareholders of those European companies, including uh, us, VC investors, historic investors. I mean, at the end of the day, you need to trade. Because if you're starting company for years, not going to make uh, any realization for any exit. Okay, mm-hmm. you need to find liquidity on a daily basis or a good interest for at least both trades. And sometimes it's tough on European market. So for a company to raise a lot of cash at nice valuations with like liquidity, unfortunately, still it's been going on for years and years and years. Yes, the US and Nasdaq is somehow better. Okay, but then not everyone is fit. To go to NASDAQ. And sometimes it's perfectly reasonable to stay European and to keep having an IPO listing and, and make the best out of it. You see? It's, yeah, not, it's, it's not the, the ultimate objective that any company should reach. And again, mm-hmm. there are many constraints, it's a different game. And just ask the question to those government managers of of having gone IPO and NASDAQ. I can tell you, take a picture of them before in a few years after NASDAQ listing, they will see physically a change. Yeah, I worked in listed companies. I completely agree. It's a different game. It's a yeah. totally, totally different game. Yeah. Uh, Bruno, we are coming to the end of today's episode. I would like to ask one final question. Sure. So let's assume you have a time machine and mm-hmm. you can go back uh, into the past and meet your younger self. Yeah. So at the time when you finished school, uh, what is the most important advice you would like to give to your younger self with all the experience Oof. you gained over years? Um, I think it would be one just for a, a career path, which is understand the, organi- the organization you're working for, the people you're working for or with, uh, because it is as important as what you bring. So, so managing your own career uh, needs to be thought of carefully, and and largely it is the understanding of organization, how things work, what are people's standards and interest, to make sure that um, you're not surprised by some decisions, or you're not the one actually being hit by such decisions. A bit surprisingly, okay. Uh, yeah, this is what I would I would give as an advice. <laughs> Bruno, thank you very much for your time and your insights. I wish you all the best at Cerova Life Science and a lot of nice and successful exits. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation, Christian. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.